It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Kristen about acromegaly. According to the mayoclinic.org, acromegaly is a hormone disorder that develops when your pituitary gland produces too much growth hormone during adulthood. When you have too much growth hormone, your bones increase in size. In childhood, this leads to increased height and is called gigantism. But in adulthood, a change in height doesn't occur. Instead, the increase in bone size is limited to the bones of your hands, feet, and face, and is called acromegaly. Because acromegaly is uncommon and the physical changes occur slowly over many years, the condition sometimes takes a long time to recognize. That was very much true for Kristen. It took about 20 years to figure out that she had acromegaly. During that time, overwhelming structural changes were taking place in her body. Her hands and face grew. Her tongue grew to the point where it wouldn't fit in her mouth. Her internal organs were growing. And she had no idea why any of this was happening. She went to doctor after doctor seeking help and was told over and over again that she was an obese hypochondriac who was doing this to herself. Even when she finally found a doctor who believed that there was some mysterious process at work in Kristen's body, it would take another 10 years for her doctor to get specialists to believe Kristen. Acromegaly is caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland. And when Kristen finally got her diagnosis and saw an endocrinologist who specialized in acromegaly, they looked back through her brain scans going back 10 years, and the tumor was there the whole time. The tumor had grown so large that Kristen required emergency surgery. If the tumor had grown any larger, it likely would have been inoperable, and acromegaly would have become life-threatening. Kristen's story is absolutely riveting and astonishing. I was shocked when we were talking. I had no idea what major pain we were going to be discussing. Kristen had been referred to me by someone, and I said, sure, let's have you on the show. And then she got to talking. And I was just absolutely riveted. This is such an incredible conversation. Kristen will not only teach us about her rare disease and what it was like to live through this ordeal, but she also talks about the emotional toll that it took to go through this type of physical change and to be blamed by her doctors. It's been about 13 years since Kristen had surgery to remove her pituitary tumor. And in that time, she has been cultivating a new relationship with her body. And the way in which she describes her journey makes for such an incredible episode of the podcast. It is emotional, it is personal, it is relatable, and it is another powerful, important story about the dangers of medical gaslighting and the importance of self-advocacy. I'm thrilled to bring you this episode today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. In personal news, I have massive, massive news to report this week. I just heard from my disability lawyer a couple days ago, and I have won my disability case. Oh, I get chills just saying those words out loud. I can't even believe it. I have been fighting for disability for about three years. I've been denied twice. On my third appeal, I had a hearing, I got a lawyer, and I won my case. I'm going to get back pay and ongoing benefits. This is just beyond a massive victory for me. Obviously, financially, this is incredible because I haven't been able to work a consistent job for about seven years in my 30s, and that has taken just such a massive financial toll on my life. But also, 
I can't even describe the validation of having a judge look at my medical history, read through every page of my almost 2,000-page long medical file, and determine that, yes, I have been too sick to work, and I deserve to be on disability. I did talk to my judge about how I just got a diagnosis and treatment, and I'm doing so much better, so he wants to reevaluate in 18 months. But I'm pretty sure that a huge factor for why I won my case is that I had a diagnosis, and I actually was able to say, this is the reason I haven't been able to work. We have a doctor telling us, this is why this has been happening for the last seven years. So the timing of that was really remarkable. And, you know, as I've been talking about, I've been on the upswing recently, and I'm very hopeful that that process will continue. I've been taking on a little bit more freelance work and making a little bit more money because I've been doing better. And I'm very hopeful that that process will continue. And I might be able to get back to a place where I can work enough that I would no longer qualify for disability. That would be a dream come true. That's absolutely my goal. But in the meantime, I get to focus on learning how to live with mast cell activation syndrome and small fiber neuropathy, figuring out how to do what my body needs to do to stabilize, but having a little bit of financial security for the first time in about seven years. It's really overwhelming. I have a lot more I want to say about this. I think that Andy and I will talk about it when we do a podcast talking about her pituitary adenoma, because she just had surgery for that. And as I'll talk about with Kristen on the show today, there is some overlap between acromegaly and a pituitary adenoma. They are both pituitary tumors that secrete hormones into your body. For Andy, she had an adenoma that secretes prolactin. And for Kristen, she had acromegaly that secretes growth hormone. So they have completely different presentations, but the way that you treat it is very similar. You do surgery on the pituitary gland. And I talked to Kristen right before Andy's surgery took place and got some really valuable information that I was able to share with Andy right before her surgery. So at some point over the next couple of weeks, Andy will be on the show on the main podcast feed talking about her surgery. She wants to wait till she's through the six-week recovery period. And at that point, we're going to talk more about you know, what it means to me to be on disability and how that's changing my life. It's still very, very fresh. I just found this out about three days ago. So yeah, lots more to say about this. But the thing I really wanted to tell you about today is that I want to give a shout out to my disability lawyer because he made the impossible happen. His name is John Cheehawk from the firm Cheehawk and Cheehawk, and you can find them online at wadisability.com for Washington Disability. They serve all of Washington State. They have offices in Seattle, Tacoma, and Spokane. The first time I spoke with John, he told me that my case was going to be a real uphill battle because at that point I didn't have a diagnosis. All I knew is that I was extremely sick, barely functional, and there was no way that I could work. And he told me that without a diagnosis, it would be tough, and he would need to look through my medical file to determine if he thought it was even possible. But he was willing to take on my case when it was a long shot, and then I got a diagnosis, which really, I think, helped the situation. And he fought so hard for me, something that I didn't know before applying to disability that is crucial for everyone to know is that you don't pay anything unless your lawyer wins disability. That's at least how it works with Chihawk and Chihawk. That is very common. There are lawyers who charge you up front, but if you do a little bit of research in your neck of the woods, you will likely find a disability lawyer who charges you nothing unless they win your case. But John fought really hard for me. He prepped me before my hearing. He did exhaustive research. He read through my entire medical file. He told me that the two people on the planet who were probably most familiar with my medical file were him and the judge. And most importantly, he won my case. 
So if you are in Washington State and you are looking for a disability attorney, go to wadisability.com. Chihawk and Chihawk. Thank you again to John and to his wife, Robin Chihawk, who has also been involved in my case. They made the impossible happen, and I can't thank them enough. I've put that link, wadisability.com, in the show notes for this episode. In other news, last week I talked a lot about my old naturopath and how I was trying out something he recommended called Corey Dallas. He thought that it might be similar to trying LDN, low-dose naltrexone, to sort of reset the opioid receptors in your body. It can help with chronic pain. And I'm sad to report that it did not help me. It actually was a bit of a rough week for me. I got worse and worse over the course of the week and dizzier and dizzier. I was having some really extreme dizziness. I wanted to try to make it two weeks on the Cori Dallas because sometimes, you know, when you start something, it makes you a little bit worse as your body adjusts. But I just couldn't. I, it made me too sick. So I went off of it after about a week and started to feel better immediately. I did read online that Cori Dallas can make you dizzy if it is dropping your blood pressure, and that is a bad thing, especially if you are on blood pressure medication. And I do take a low dose of metoprolol because I have a high heart rate and a periodic arrhythmia, and that medication helps with that. So this just wasn't a good fit for me. I had to stop the Cori Dallas. I am still curious about LDN. I mentioned last week how I hadn't tried it because it's so hard to get, but I actually did get a tip on that from one of our listeners, Soph, who wrote to me on TikTok and said, currently listening to your latest podcast episode and just wanted to give you a little LDN tip. You can call your local compounding pharmacies and ask them which local providers are prescribing LDN. Then you can narrow down who to see from that list rather than going to a new provider and just hoping they are LDN informed. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare providers to the public and that you don't need an appointment or insurance to get their advice. You can just walk in or call. The compounding pharmacists are more likely to know who is prescribing LDN compared to regular retail pharmacists. Hope this helps. Very helpful tip. So something I love about doing this podcast is getting tips like this. I mean, that's a real chronic illness hack that I didn't know about, have never thought about before. It's pretty brilliant. And I love being able to share stuff like that with the rest of our listeners. It was a great practical tip. It can be really hard to find a healthcare practitioner who's willing to prescribe LDN, but this is a great way to reverse engineer that process, figure out who's prescribing it through a local compounding pharmacy, get some names to call and see if they take your insurance and go from there. Love that tip. Thank you, Soph. I also got an email I wanted to share from our old friend Morgan, who appeared on the show way back in season one, was actually the first person who ever even said the words mast cell activation syndrome to me. As we were recording that podcast, a little bell went off in my brain. I'm like, that sounds like what happens to me around mold. And here we are years later, and I have been diagnosed with that disease. Of course, last week I was talking about Corey Dallas and chronic pain, and Morgan wrote in with this great tip for MCAS patients. This email reads, I was wondering if you have heard about the community's homemade masto creams. I know that you have a lot of pain, and I wanted to bring up the idea of mixing in any extra chromalin you may have with one of your lotions. I started doing it for skin symptoms, but found it helps me a lot for the pain too. Just food for thought. So if you have mast cell activation syndrome like me, you will be likely familiar with chromalin sodium, which is the main mast cell stabilizer prescription medication that I take four times a day. And Morgan is saying that you can mix that with your lotion and rub it on your skin for pain. I've got to try that. Unfortunately, I don't have any extra chromalin sodium, but I know that my mom has a little stash because one of her friends was being checked for mast cell activation syndrome, got to try chromalin, discovered it didn't work for them, 
moved on in a new direction and gave all of this to my mom because she knows that I have MCAS. So next time I go visit my parents, I'm going to pick some of this up and mix it with some lotion, rub it on my skin and see what happens. I'm really excited to try it out. I do have a couple of spots that are usually in pain most days. So I'm real excited for this tip. Thank you, Morgan. Great to hear from you. I'm sure by now you've heard me talk about our amazing partnership with Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind or if you are a caregiver, you can sign up to participate in research studies and surveys and be paid for your time an average of $120 per hour. Such a cool program, a great way to support our scientific community that is trying to research your disease. Something I'm really excited to be supporting here on the podcast. And I have a huge thank you this week. We had three people sign up this week. Every time someone signs up, I get a $10 gift card to Amazon, which I use to buy my supplements that I'm using for MCAS. It's so hugely helpful. And to get three in one week is unheard of. So thank you to everyone who signed up for Rare Patient Voice this week. If you're interested in checking it out, head to rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. And of course, another great way to support the show is to sign up for monthly financial contributions on Patreon. You can support the creation of this show directly. I'm a one-man show over here. I do all the production, the mixing, the editing, doing the show write-ups, posting the podcasts. Definitely a labor of love, something that I get so much out of doing, but it's amazing to have some financial support to do that as well. So head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to check it out. Everyone who signs up gains access to monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. We'll be recording a new one within the next 10 days or so. We also have different levels of recognition and even gifts when you sign up. Speaking of recognition, extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting the show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Thank you so much for your continued support of this show. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to check it out. This episode of Major Pain is also supported through a creator grant from the Stimpunks Foundation. I'm so excited we finally had the Stimpunks on the podcast last week. Ryan and Chelsea, we had such a great conversation. Make sure you check that out. If you have not heard it yet, you can learn all about the Stimpunks Foundation and how they are supporting neurodivergent and disabled people directly, including their creator grant program. Head to stimpunks.org to check it out. I'll remind you as always that my guests and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our incredible conversation with Kristen about acromegaly. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jesse. It's nice to meet you and it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. We were just discussing how we were connected. It was actually through an Instagram comment. (laughs) Someone said, hey, this person should be on your podcast. I'm like, great, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, the knitting community connect us. So I love that. Yeah, my mom is a big part of the knitting community. And she has sent several people towards the podcast. And we've interviewed a few of her community in the past, which has been very exciting. And here we are today. So this is going to be really exciting. So Kristen, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? I am a 57-year-old woman who is a mom. I have a 32-year-old son. That's a big part of my identity and who I am. Um, I've been married a really long time. My husband and I are celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary in just a few weeks. And so that's kind of a big part of my life and a big part of my health and pain story is this 
human being that I've been with for a long time. I am an older sister of eight, um, which is a big part of my human story, which is important. Um, I am a mom of dogs and um, (laughs) my life is filled with my dogs. They're a huge part of my day, huge part of who I am. I teach sociology. As you'll come to get to know me, I'm on disability. And so people will say, well, how are you a teacher if you're on disability? And disability does allow you to have a little bit of income. So I have been a sociologist and a teacher of sociology for a very long time. And when I went on disability, I didn't work for a long time. But now I can teach just a little bit. I teach three classes a year. And that's still a central piece of my identity is being a teacher and being a sociologist. I love it. Going to be retiring due to the changes in my health and who I am. And I'm working on becoming a life coach. Um, I'm hoping to work with folks who have stories similar to mine. And I'm um, hoping that transition will take place in the next year. I love working in my yard. I love gardening. I'm an avid reader. I'm super political. I love voting. Um, I'm a geek. I keep up on stuff like that. Um, it's a huge part of my identity. And I'm a Portlander. I'm born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and I've been here all my life. And I really love it. I'm also someone who likes to spend a lot of time in the woods. Mm. Um, I find my peace and my happiness in trees. It's like spend a lot of time with my dog in the trees. <laughs> I like the quiet. Um, I'm an introvert. I'm not shy, but I'm an introvert. And I really like the peacefulness of being alone. Um, I'm really settled in that. And I love, I love being in my fifties. I love it. And I'm not afraid of aging. And I really, um, and a happy, happy 57-year-old woman and um, really find peace and joy in saying that I'm 57 and I have really long gray hair and I love my gray hair. It brings me a lot of peace, which sounds really crazy to a lot of people, but it brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. Oh, and I love cooking soups. (laughs) That was an amazing self-description uh yeah i feel i really feel like i have a good sense of you now that was really exceptionally well done and now i'm so curious how your health weaves into your life and into your story so let's get into that Kristen. what is your major pain so i have a history of acromegaly and so acromegaly is um sometimes referred to as gigantism Mm. although there's some differences between the two of them based on when you get it but acromegaly um, has to do with growth hormone, which a lot of people know about because a lot of people um, take the human growth hormone to get larger or, or to make their bodies bigger. But in this case, it's um, natural, it's dangerous, and it can kill you. So um, acromegaly refers to um, or is caused by typically a um, tumor on your pituitary gland. Wow. Pituitary tumors are super common. Acromegaly is just one of the more rare forms of pituitary tumor, and um, it's a it's a hormonal tumor. Um, most pituitary tumors don't really impact people. I've actually been told by endocrinologists that if and in the readings that I've done um, that if you were to do autopsies on human beings, we would find that um, a large number of the human population actually has a pituitary tumor, but they don't do anything to them because they're not hormonal 
or they're small or they don't have a negative impact. But the kind that I have is a rare form, a very rare form, and it's a hormonal tumor. So what it means is it impacts your hormonal system. So uh, this pituitary tumor causes your body to produce growth hormone. And depending on when you get your pitu- this type of pituitary tumor, whether you're a child or you're an adult, the impact on your body is still the same, but it, the physical results are a little different. So if your bones are not yet fused, the results will be an extraordinary tall person. So you might meet a child or a, an adult who's, you know, seven foot tall and comes from a family of people that are all five five. So they're extraordinarily large uh, at tall in terms of that. For those of us who get it as adults, um, our bones are fused. So we can still get bigger, um, but usually our bones get wider um, and our bodies just get enormously large and mass. Mm. Um, and so for me, for instance, an example would be my feet. I went from like a size nine average foot, maybe a little wide, to before I was diagnosed to a 12 double wide. In what course of time? Um, that's what's really interesting about acromegaly. So acromegaly really takes a long time for a diagnosis. Um, it's very hard to diagnose. And so I started showing changes in my bodily system in my early 20s, very early 20s, and, um, and was not diagnosed until I was 44. Wow. So it was 20 years. And so over that 20-year period, you know, I saw my body go from a very slight um, I weighed about 120 pounds. And again, I was young. So we, we do gain weight from, a, from early 20s, um, you know, from being 20 to 44. You do gain weight. Your body goes through changes. But my body doubled in size. So I went from like 120 to about 280 uh, in pounds. Um, I went from, um, uh, you know, a shoe size being nine to a 12 double or sometimes triple wide. Um, my hands grew extraordinarily large. My face, which is one of the primary features of acromegaly, uh, are changes in your face. So my face looks extremely different. Um, like, for instance, this mark demarcation down here is due to my, um, which folks can't see on the podcast, but I have a demarcation down the front of my forehead. And that is due to my skull and the forehead moving forward. Mm. And then there's a break somewhere in here. This is very common in folks with acromegaly. As the forehead goes forward, my eyelids have drooped over my eye. My right eye, for instance, um, does not look the same as it did in my early 20s. My face looks physically different. My tongue grew. To the point, as did my jaw moved in shape, which is very common for those of us with acromegaly, that your, your jaw grows very large and downward. So my tongue grew to the point for a while prior to the surgery and the end of the growth hormone that it could not fit in my mouth anymore. Wow. But it kind of hung out. But now it, uh, it can fit in my mouth, but it still hangs out of my teeth. So these were really large structural changes that were taking place in my body. Um, for that period of time. So, um, as this was taking place, you know, you, you engage in a lot of activities to try to determine what's going on. Sure. And like I said, it was a 
a slow process. You know, your feet don't go from nine to 12 in, you know, a, a short period of time. You know, so you're, you're hitting the gym, you're exercising, you're doing all these things to try to figure out what's going on with your body. You're watching your diet. You're, you're trying to figure out these things. You're, um, yeah, all sorts of things. So that is my, that's my, where my pain, the source of my pain. Once I got the tumor taken out, um, that is where the pain then became worse, which is, which is quite fascinating. Um, I was super fortunate to be able to have the surgery, to have the tumor removed. The tumor had been in there so long. Um, and I had gone to doctors for about 20 years, 15 years, trying to get somebody to listen to me that something was going on in my body. Wow. I was having tremendous pain. I was having all sorts of things go on and I couldn't get people to listen to me. I was called an obese hypochondriac. Oh. Those two words together, um, more times than I can possibly count. And it, it shifts your sense of self and confidence in ways that you can't really put into words. Yeah. Um, I know for folks that are listening who have rare conditions and that have gone to the doctor, they will understand this. You lose a sense of yourself after a while because you just feel like nobody's listening. So you just, you just keep trudging on. Um, you just keep trudging on um, in a way that you just can't, you know, you just keep going to the doctor. Um, but I was having tremendous pain, um, which I now know to be neuropathy. Didn't know that was the case then, but tremendous pain. Um, I was waking up in the middle of the night, unable to breathe. And when I mean unable to breathe, like couldn't catch my breath. And that would not be once or twice a night. That would be multiple times in the night where I literally could not breathe. And I would then be choking for breath. You know, you go to the doctor and again, well, it's because you're obese. Mm. <laughs> so you know, it's hard. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult to handle. So with all of those kinds of changes that were taking place, once I finally got a really good doctor who believed me, an incredible human being that believed me and looked at all my medical records and said, hey, your medical history cannot is not due to being obese. Like you can't have these types of blood work numbers from an external force. You can't have these types of things from activity level, that this is a systemic problem very clearly. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's an onion. We're going to have to peel back together. Can you go on this journey with me? And I cried. I cried. Her name was Dr. Melanie Smith. She's a just recently retired. She was a doctor of osteopathy and we went on this journey together and it took her and I, I think 10 years, for her to get specialists to believe her. Wow. So we, we went to endocrinologists. We went, we had brain scans done. We did all sorts of things. And she was just furious. She felt it was something in my brain, like a pituitary. She felt it was endocrine related. We were just getting knocked around. And it was a neuro neurologist who took one look at my face and said, I think I know what it is. I'm going to call your primary care. And just can you trust me? And at this point, I was pretty devastated. You know, I was like, I'll, I'll trust you. I'll trust anybody at this point. 
And she called my primary care and they talked and they got me a test for acromegaly. And the neurologist was working with an endocrinologist who specialized in acromegaly. And she got me into that doctor. And she said to me, the neurologist, I'm going to hook you up with this doctor. It's going to take months to get in. Don't panic. They will get all your paperwork before. And then when you meet with them, she'll have the, she'll have the answer for you. Hmm. Just trust me. And I was like, you know, she didn't call me an obese contract. Like, <laughs> That's improvement. Yeah. And so um, I met with her in August. Um, I took my son to college. She said, bring in pictures of yourself from 20 years. And I did. And she showed me across my face all the signs of acromegaly and how it was apparent when my acromegaly started. She said, I'm going to do a couple of tests on you, more blood work. Um, she showed me all my brain scans going back 10 years. And she said, look, this is the tumor. This is the tumor. This is the tumor. It's been here all along. Why the radiologists have said it's not, I have no idea. She said, take your son to college. Uh, we're going to hook you up with this one surgeon. I don't want you to talk to any other surgeon. If this surgeon is on vacation, don't talk to another surgeon. So that was in August. I took my son to school the 1st of September. When I was in California, I got a call. The surgeon said, get back to or at Portland immediately. I mean, immediately. So we turned around and we came back. The day we got into town, I went into his office and he said, we have to do surgery on this right now. It's wrapped around your carotid artery. It's grown into your brain. If we have any chance of getting this or any chance of you living, we got to go now. Wow. So on October 6th of that year, I had surgery and uh, they got it all. And that was when you were around 42 years old? 44 years old. 44. Okay. Yeah. Wow. This is mind blowing. First of all, I did not know we were going to be covering a condition that we've never talked about on the podcast today. And I'm thrilled about that. It's one of my primary missions is to, you know, cover as many different conditions as possible. So on that level, this is very exciting for me personally. But also, I live with my, my partner, Andy, who has a pituitary adenoma, and she's having yeah. surgery next week, uh, in like 10 yeah. days from now. And it has been a huge, hugely difficult decision to decide to do that. She was actually on the podcast in season one, talking about her pituitary adenoma. So I live with someone who has a pituitary tumor that is a very different type of tumor, but I have seen the way that it has sort of upended her entire life because when your hormone regulation is not happening correctly, it completely disrupts every aspect of your body. So this is all very interesting to me on, on a personal level just because, you know, my partner who I love very much is, is touched by something similar to this. Um, but on top of that, your story is incredible. I mean... I'm so frustrated every time I hear about the medical gaslighting that people are experiencing out in the world. And this is another really horrific example where doctors wouldn't believe you and calling you a obese hypochondriac is so deeply offensive. But it's also not surprising at all, which is really upsetting. <laughs> um, 
but your persistence is so admirable and the fact that it was at the point where it would have been potentially fatal had this doctor not found it and this tumor is on all the imaging going back for for years and years and years so i mean i do i have a lot of questions for you but i just want to say you know i know personally what it's like to have doctors not listen to you and to have to keep fighting for yourself and that is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I finally got a diagnosis recently, and it's been incredible. And I finally got, you know, physical proof of chronic pain recently, which has been incredible. Um, so I can relate to the the feelings of elation of getting a diagnosis, even though it's like, hey, there's something wrong here. But it's like, I'm just thrilled. You know, I'm thrilled to find out there's something wrong because I've been looking for this for my whole life. Uh, and I'm I'm 38, so... Well, actually, I'm 39. I just turned 39. But I was just diagnosed when I was 38. So I'm not, you know, not far off in age from where you were when you were finally diagnosed. Um, how? Okay, let's get into some questions here. So how do they know that this pituitary tumor formed in your 20s? Is that an estimate based off of changes in your body over time? Yes. So um, how they knew was um, she could show documentation in my face. And I could see it as well. The other thing was, I knew from the changes in the way I felt and the way my body was working. Hmm. And I come from um, like people of a certain build and I had always had a certain build. I hadn't changed the way I was eating or I hadn't changed the way I was behaving in any way. As a matter of fact, I actually got healthier. I was exercising. I was walking. I was doing five K's or 10 K's twice a week with a a friend. I was working out (laughs) at a gym. I was doing things and nothing was budging, you know, yeah. so everything just kept growing. So there was those aspects of it that were just extremely frustrating. But in my early 20s, you know, I went from a size like eight to a size 22 in just a couple of years without any changes in my lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I fell in love with my husband. And of course, we go to Burger King late at night and stuff like that when you're in love. But it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, every night or anything like that, you know, I actually underate more than I overeat, you know, as a young person. So, but to have those changes take place and those started at about 19 Mm. um, when I started to see those like dramatic changes take place, you know, I could calculate it. Also when I was 18, I had um, some very serious health problems and I went in and I had some scoping done. And at that time, the, the doctor said, Kristen, your insides look like a 80-year-old. And I remember thinking like that it was due to stress or family stress at that time, which was very serious. And she was extremely worried about my health. She's like, if this continues, like you'll die early. And so that was an indication that like there was already something really internal going on in my body. I was in the emergency room all the time for weird things. I had more surgeries than anyone I know. Yeah. So like I had an apodectomy. I had my appendix out and the doctor went in and he said, um, you know, I'm going to make this up because I don't know how long appendix are supposed to take to come out. So let's say it's two hours. And he, my mind took five. And so when I went for my follow-up, he said, you know, I want to talk to you because when I went in there, it's supposed to only take two hours and yours took five. And he goes, the reason it took five is your body is a mess. Mm. And he said, I went in there and every organ is oversized and swollen and inflamed and a mess. And he said, again, you're, an, you're obese. 
And he's like, your, your system is close to failing and you need to take better care of yourself. Like, do you exercise? And he gave me a huge lecture on exercise, but he did not at any point think about like, why would this woman have every single organ be oversized? Yeah. What, what age was this? Uh, this was in my late thirties. Okay. And so I was constantly getting feedback like this. Like people were seeing that things were wrong, but no one was saying like, this is a systemic thing. No one was saying like, you know, like we should take a look at this. Like there's something wrong with her. And, um, he even said like your appendix was, and he talked about all the abnormalities of my appendix. And he attributed it all to my behavior and my lifestyle. And he did not look at all of it at all in any systemic or holistic view. And he just kind of shamed me for an hour. And I left there just morally defeated, morally defeated and thinking I was a horrible human being. You know, in the years that followed, once I got a diagnosis and, and all of that, I started to go back and look at like all of the places that people missed. The opportunity to, if they had been curious people, like my doctor of osteopathy, if they'd been curious, like this neurologist, if they'd been curious, like my orthopedist, who I'll talk a little bit about in a little bit, they'd been curious about my physical therapist I currently have. If they'd been curious like these other folks, imagine the care I would have gotten and imagine the damage that wouldn't have been done. Wow. And, um... And imagine the the health that I would have now. I do have a lot of um, frustration. Uh, I've moved beyond the anger, um, but that that took a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and that's important. I kind of had to go through that process as well. The anger of having something staring someone in the face and having them ignore it and blame you and just assume it's your behavior causing all of your organs to be oversized. That's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's so deeply upsetting. And in, in my case, my diagnosis ended up being really hard to get and hard to find. And I tested negative for the thing that I got diagnosed with. So that really helped me let go of my anger because mine was not obvious at all. There's elements of it that were obvious looking back, but my mast cell activation syndrome is poorly understood and a relatively new diagnosis. And I can look back now and say, yeah, my doctors actually tried harder than I thought, even though they failed, you know, because the guy who finally got the diagnosis for me went off of a hunch, even when my test results were negative and put me on the medication and it worked like gangbusters, you know, and that, I mean, that is so lucky. And that really helped me let go of the anger. But in your case, we have decades of test results. We have the imaging with the tumor on the imaging doctors saying, why are your organs so large? You know, all of the evidence is just right there staring at these doctors and they chose to ignore it and blame you. How do you let go of that anger? Because yours is something that is more malicious than what I experienced. And I had a hard enough time letting go of my anger. So how how did you do that? So I have to tell you a little bit about my family to kind of let you know how that works. One of the things is that I come from a family culture. Um, my mom is really disconnected from body. And so, um, like growing up, if you were sick, you just go to school. I've talked to my mom about this. She's since passed about three years ago. Like I have no memories of her caring for me when I was sick ever. She'd go to work and you went to bed. Like end of story. She actually would get frustrated if you got sick. 
my mom is was brilliantly intellectual. Um, she was very much in her head, and so the, there was a real disconnect between the, the mind and the body. We weren't allowed to talk about bodily functions in the house. So words like fart and poop and butt were like off limits. <laughs> she did not tell us to tell me about the birds and the bees. And she was a teen mom who got pregnant as a teenager. My dad was a senior in high school. She had just graduated from high school. So, you know, she would think that she would have wanted to talk about that. Um, she didn't even tell me about my period. Uh, I learned that at school. She would explain things, but like, really quickly and there was no like i'll show you like how to do these things or i'll talk to you about that now she may have been with my sister i don't know but she wasn't with me i'm the eldest and of the eight children she and my dad had four together and so she only raised four of us and so our family culture in the house was very much not about that and so when i got sick um and when i was sick and i was talking about it a lot I don't want to say she was on the side that I was an obese hypochondriac, but she was always offering things like, I'll pay for Weight Watchers. Mm. And like, if I had a candy bar, she would be like looking this face at me like, Christian, she never comforted me or believed me I, 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 during those times. And so then when I got the diagnosis, I didn't really tell her everything about it. When they said you have to have the surgery immediately or all these things you know, repercussions may happen. They also said like, your heart is so large, we don't know if we're going to be able to do the surgery. So you have to have a heart test. They said with acromegaly and someone who's had it as long as you and presents like you, your breathing tube is so small. We don't know if we're going to be able to get you intubated. And if we can't get you intubated, we're going to put a trach in and you'll have it for the rest of your life. There was all these kinds of things going on. So when I went into the surgery, um, I didn't know, one, if I was going to have a trait for the rest of my life. I didn't know, two, if they were going to get all the tumor or not. And three, I didn't know if, based on how poor my health was, you know, I would come out alive. So there was lots of things that were really stressful about that surgery. And it was a really, really long surgery, too, because of the complication of it being around my carotid artery and then up into the supercella. So there's a lot to do there. And I was in ICU six days afterwards. It was pretty complicated. And so, you know, it was all that going on. But afterwards, what happened with me was I was left with a mirage of comorbidities. It takes about two years after you have acromegaly for your body to readjust to a new norm of not having the growth hormone. Mm -hmm. So it's like I was taking HGH for 25 years and then all of a sudden it's gone and my body had to adjust. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, that adjustment was a nightmare. Yeah. And it left me with almost every system in my body is affected and not well. <laughs> and so um, that adjustment period was awful. I did not get help from my worker, my, my place of employment. I went into a clinical depression. I had panic attacks and never had a panic attack in my life. I couldn't go to the grocery store because the environmental stimulus was so bad. Um, my blood pressure skyrocketed. Every system I had went into a breakdown as it got adjusted to the lack of growth hormone and how to handle it. And so I fell apart in the two years following the surgery and had to like figure out how to live. 
because it's a hormonal tumor and it's your primary, the pituitary is your primary gland. And that is where, going back to your original question, my family culture really came into play because my mom didn't believe me. After the surgery? No. And that was really hard. What did she not believe? That that this tumor had been causing your your growth? She just thought, well, just get over this. Like, when is this going to stop? Like, what's wrong with you? Just go to work. Hmm. My doctor hadn't signed something for me to return to work after FMLA and after leave, federal leave. And I, I was all dressed, ready to go to work. And I went to my doctor's office and said, hey, I, I, you know, I had made an appointment. Hey, I need the doctor just to sign these. And the nurse was taking my blood pressure. And I said, I don't need my blood pressure taken. I'm, I just need these signatures. You know, I knew the nurse super well. And, um, and she said, no, we do it no matter when you come in. And when she was taking my blood pressure, she screamed. I was like, what in the world is going on? She screamed and ran out of the office. And she, the doctor ran in. And she said, Kristen, and she took my blood pressure and she looked at me and she says, Kristen, you are on the verge of stroking out. I was like, what? I'm like, I'm not stroking out. I'm going to work. What are you talking about? I'm on tracks. I'm going to work. What? She's like, no, you are literally on the verge of stroking out. And I was already on all this blood pressure medicine already after the surgery and all this other stuff. And she's like, I'm not letting you go back to work. She's like, you, your body is not sustaining. Since you've gone back to work and since the surgery, you, you can't do this. Like your body is not sustaining. Like it's not sustaining. And she wrote a note and she said, you're, I'm not allowing you to go back to work. We're going to start with two weeks and we're going from here. And I literally left her office in shock and crying. So my mom worked for a family business and I went and I used her fax machine, like, Hey, let's go. Let's, you know, and I was in complete shock crying. Like what's going on? Like I, I, I gotta go to work. Like, what do you mean? I can't go to work. And I went to my mom and I was like, Hey, I need to fax this in to my work. Like I can't go to work and I don't know what to do. And, and my mom just looked at me and she said, when are you going to get over all this? Like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I legally can't go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> my doctor's like, won't send these forms. So it was a huge cross to bear for being my mom because of her culture and her way of thinking. This is how she had raised us. It's like, you, you stay in your head. You don't listen to your body. Like my mom had died of cancer and she was super proud of the fact that when she was undergoing chemo and radiation, she, she would drive herself and then go back to work. She was super proud of when she had a hysterectomy in the 80s. So way back before we had all this amazing ways we do things now, that she had a hysterectomy and went back to work four days later. Like she bragged about that. She had a disconnect there that I can't have to survive. Like I can't have. So when you talk about the anger and the frustration and how did I move beyond that, I had to really do a lot of reconciling with my own family culture. And in doing that, it really just helped me to let go of a lot of things. It just really helped me to let go of like, for me to survive and for me to be at peace and for me to move forward, I have to just reconcile that. That is a culture that I can't be a part of. And that's a culture that I have to forgive. Mm. And so I was able to just forgive my, my mom, who I loved, 
and it's still love, but it's no longer with us. And I had to forgive the doctor culture. I just had to forgive it. And I had to go forward because um, my body's pretty, had a lot of damage. My body's pretty wiped out. And my body, I don't know how long. I lost a lot of time to this disease already. And I'm pretty sure I don't have the longevity that I would have had without it. Mm. And so I don't want to give it any more time. And now that I've learned in my post-acromegaly recovery, how to be in tune with my body and how to have a happy, beautiful relationship with it and how to listen to it and honor it and how to be at peace with it. I just want to stay there. So I've actually even cut off my relationships with people who can't respect that new culture I'm in. Mm. I've modeled it a little out of my friends who are in recovery for addiction about how you have to literally like move yourself into a new culture and a new lifestyle and a new way of thinking and a new paradigm to be healthy. And that's what I've done with myself now. And it's taken a, a long time. Like I said, I had my surgery in 2010 and I had that depression horrible depression, panic attack, all of that. Um, but in the last 10 years, I have spent completely dedicated to relearning how to ha have a different relationship between my mind and my body and how to love that. And I've been mocked for it by my family <laughs> and teased for it and other things. But I've found that I've just created kind of a community now of folks that really understand it and respect it and love it and honor it. I have two incredible best friends who have been with me for day one through it all, from the very beginning to the end, who are like, have been on board through everything. I have an incredible husband who half the time doesn't know what in the world I'm up to. He's like, breath work? What are we doing? Mm -hmm. And he's even gone to breath work workshops with me. Or it's like, what's forest bathing? I'm like, I'm going out with the dogs. Mm -hmm. Now he goes out in the forest by himself with the dogs. And that's been beautiful. I don't think he even understands 90% of the stuff that I've been up to. And, and, and it's been great. Mm -hmm. um, so I am created a life and a community for myself that's in a new culture. And in doing that, I found such peace that I can like, forgive and love that other world and just be okay. Mm. But it's been a process and there's been lots of therapy, 10 years of therapy and I'm good. I'm here. I think for me, the best thing that happened was my mom. Interestingly, my mom would never go to the doctor with me ever. She never asked to, she never wanted to. Um, <laughs> but she loves her sisters and she loved being with her sisters. And one of her sisters went to the same neurosurgeon that I went to. And she went with her sister and brother-in-law to go visit the neurosurgeon with my aunt when she was having some struggles. And she introduced herself to my neurosurgeon and said, you might remember my daughter. And he was like, of course. Um, and it had been like seven or eight years since my surgery and maybe seven years. And he was like, yeah, I remember your daughter. Like that was a wild surgery. And he trains on it in the video and he trains on it up at our medical school. 
he told her something and I don't know what it was, but basically like, I hope she's living a decent life because, you know, whatever. And she called me afterwards and she said, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you. Wow. That's when I was like, confirmation that she hadn't believed me. And so that was super healing for me, not in that it really changed our relationship, but that just acknowledging that culture of that, like the family culture of, um, about the relationship between the mind and the body. Yeah. My mom's not an evil, horrible person in any way, shape, or form. She's a beautiful human being, but she's just really was stuck in her head. She's a head person and she's not a feel with your body kind of person. So when I thought about that, when I really got a handle on that, I really thought about it. It really made me think too about the medical profession, the Western medical world, the Western medical model. That really helped me a lot with my rage. Wow. Incredible. I'm curious to hear about those years in which you didn't know what was happening, because you know, you're talking a lot about family culture, which is hugely important and obviously had a huge impact on your story. But we also live in a very superficial society, just culture at large. And to have something going on with your body that changes your appearance is very difficult. Uh, you know, I've talked to a few people for whom that is the case for a variety of reasons. And I'm curious what that was like for you to be living through these changes that you didn't choose, that you didn't cause. And you know that now, but at the time, you were blamed for it. And it sounds like you were looked down upon for it. I'm amazed by the healing process that you've gone through. But I... I'm curious to hear a bit about what it was like for you in the, in the moments when it was extremely difficult. Um, I didn't stay connected to anyone from high school. Um, I didn't post pictures of myself on anything. You know, there's like no pictures of me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever was going on during those times. Um, I didn't take pictures of myself. I also had one of the things that you get is um, you're, your hormone levels off. I got I had gigantic cystic acne, I mean, just everywhere, huge cystic acne. I mean, I can show you pictures of my face. It's just bloodied and huge. You look awful all the time. I was very lucky because I teach sociology. And so I also teach, I come from a women's studies background. So those really helped ground me a little bit in like the social construction of beauty and things like that. So that was helpful. Um, my husband didn't leave me. He didn't stop making love to me. He didn't say anything about my body that was awful. But that was super helpful. Um, it says a lot about who he is and the grace of the man he is. He was never ashamed of me. But I, like, we went to one of his company dinners and there was this really hot young girl there. She was very young and I'm calling her a girl because of what she said to me because I don't think women, I, what she said to me was awful. She saw me and she looked at me. My husband's a handsome man and she said to me, oh, gosh, you weren't what I expected for Lauren's wife. Mm. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Thanks. That was really nice. Um, and so I really struggled. I really, really struggled. Really, really struggled. And I still struggle. But um, I had this really incredible therapist who had me start taking selfies and actually put them like on Facebook. And I did. And if you go to my Instagram page, you'll see that a lot of selfies of myself. And I'm like, People are like, why is this woman taking so many selfies of herself in all stages of whatever? I don't wear makeup. Um, I'm really comfortable with that. Part of it has to do with the changes in my face and my eyelids down so far. If I put a mascara on, it rubs on my eyelid. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't wear makeup. 
I'm having our lipstick every once in a while, but I'm dressed up for something. And so I've just had to really actively work on loving myself and really learning what that means. And I've had to put a lot of energy into that. I spend a lot of time alone because I'm an introvert. I spend a lot of time reading about it. And I've just spent a lot of time putting that actively into my mind. And it's, it's not something that's easy. I mean, I've been working since the surgery, since I'm 44, now I'm 57. Uh, and um, I'm working on it constantly. Um, I did a lot of art journaling, um, a lot of affirmation collecting. Um, my, my mirror had stuff on it all the time, things on it. So I've done a lot of that kind of stuff to make sure that I'm constantly reminding myself of my work. I'm surrounded. I'm, I don't know how I got blessed with these two incredible women in my life. Um, my best friend, Carol, has carried me through this. Can't imagine my life without her. My best friend, Mel, was out of my life for a period of time because she had moved away and re-entered my life, like, literally as I was coming out of my clinical depression and the panic attacks. And she just came back. And it was like, what in the world? Like, moved back to Portland or in the Portland area. And she just, came, she just arrived like this. I'm here. Like, here. I'm here for you. And, like, she's been, like, carrying me for the last 10 years in ways that she has no idea. Like, I mean, I tell her all the time, but she's been in my life for 30 years. I mean, these women, and I'm like, what did I do to deserve this? And then I've got a friend too, who lives here locally again, and like another angel in my life. So these incredible women who have done amazing things for me. And then I have a really wonderful husband and a really wonderful son who, whose mom has been sick his whole life. And I'm pretty sure he's tired of hearing about it. <laughs> he's 32. Um, I can't imagine what he thinks some days. Like, oh my gosh, this woman is just like, that's all she talks about. But I don't. I try not to. But I'm pretty sure that that's really hard on him. But he's super gracious and super full of grace and love. And I, I'm so thankful for him. So yeah, I've just been super, super blessed. And then I have my grandma. My grandma is, I've been just been told, maybe going on hospice soon. And, um, and um, and she's ready to go, and I love her dearly. But my parents were teen parents, and I was born in her house. I mean, not literally, but we lived with them for the first four years of my life. My relationship with her is rock solid. And she was the first person after my surgery, when I went to visit her in Denver, when I pulled out my bag of pills, which I think I have 16 prescription drugs I have to take a day. And I actually take like 22 pills a day because some of them I have to take double. And um, I pulled out my bag of pills and I was getting ready to take them all. And she sat down and said, I want to know every single one of these. I want to know their name, how many milligrams you take and what they're for. And no one has ever asked me that before or since. And she sat down and she went through every single one of them. And she looked at me and she said, I've always known that there was something wrong because you physically changed your looks. And I didn't know how to tell you that your face changed. But and she told me the year she saw that it changed. And she still asks me every time I see her about my pills. And I have her. And so I've been super blessed. Like, 
so blessed with these incredible human beings. I wish for everyone who is in major pain to have just one or two people that listen. And if they have one or two people that listen and just hold space for you, um, they're blessed mm. and um, they can carry them through. Yeah. So for me, I've had this beautiful posse. I've been blessed. That's why at 57, even though every day, every part of my body hurts, I mean, every part of my body hurts. Medical equipment I have to use everywhere <laughs> to sleep, to walk, to, you know, to do anything. And even though I take way too many drugs or pharmaceuticals, and even though I'm really tired, I'm just super blessed. A podcast like yours gives voice to us, but more importantly, it gives hope. And so I just want to thank you, Jesse, because what gave me hope in the beginning after I had my diagnosis was a Acromegaly community online on Facebook. And it was an amazing community. And there was a man named Mike who, when I first joined it, he sent me a private DM. And he was the first person I ever got to talk to that had my condition. And he carried me through when you put your voice out there like YouTube have done and you created this community for people, you provide love and hope and support for human beings that at times don't have it elsewhere. I just want to thank you because you're like the blessing in people's lives that they need. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm so honored to just have been invited to your space. And um, I'm so honored to, um, be in community with you because wow. there are lots of us out there where I was 13 years ago and where you were just a little while ago that just need that connection. And um, thank you for providing it for them, for all of us. It's absolutely my pleasure. And thank you for, for sharing your story. And, you know, this podcast is nothing without the people who share their stories. And I'm still, every time, every episode, I'm just blown away. You know, you told me before we recorded that you've never done a podcast before. And that is astonishing. You are a natural. You're an incredible <laughs> storyteller. And oh, thank you. This, I mean, your story is so powerful, so important. And the, the way that you talk about being blessed and being grateful and letting go of this anger and learning to love yourself is really profoundly important for everyone, I think. I'm so glad you came on the show. Before we wrap up, I do want to know what's happened post-surgery. So, once you have this tumor removed, are you in remission? Does that mean that, do you still have acromegaly or is it like you are in remission from that? How does that work? Depending on where you are, there's different standards for what remission means. And so here in the United States, it's um, about 10 years that you like cured. You do testing. So there's a variety of blood work that you do and you do testing. And it typically starts in the beginning. Um, I think it was every three months and then it goes to every six months. And then supposedly when you get to 10 years, I think you're supposed to do it less often. And then you can do brain MRIs also in between all of that, depending on your doctor and what they think is best 
depending on what your blood work is showing and what is going on. And your blood work is really lengthy. It's a whole bunch of stuff that they look at indicators to figure out what's going on. For me, we got to the 10-year mark and I've shown uh, it doesn't look like the tumor is back. Um, I I have some weird indicators, like um, I I have very little prolactin, (laughs) Mm. which is an indication that a tumor may be coming back on your pituitary gland. So I have like, 2% 2% prolactin, I think, or I don't know if it's percentage, I like two on my prolactin. And it's just projecting downward. So we're watching that very closely. So I'm still going in every six months. We do know from my global acromegaly group that there are folks who it's come back at the 12, 13, 15 year mark. So we know that cure isn't really, um, that for some of us, cure isn't at 10 years. So I just keep watching. You know, uh, we're special as uh, well. My doctors, I say, well, you're special, Kristen. Um, so, like, you know, my dentist keeps the close eye because teeth movement can be, because of the jaw, can be an early sign even before we find out on the blood work. Things like I have to have uh, field vision tests every year, which are, you know, not common for people to have. So, I have special indicators that are done through all my specialists that they look for um, to keep an eye on my um, any movement or changes and they report back to my endocrinologist. So I haven't been blessed or privileged to go down to uh, every year. I'm still at the six months mark. I'm blessed to have insurance. I'm blessed to be able to go, no complaints. And, you know, so I still have some weird indicators that we are keeping an eye out for, but I'm super happy to just be, you know, so far uh, we're at 13 years and, um, I just, uh, you know, keep moving along. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been so amazing to hear your story today. And I'm thinking back to how you introduced yourself and telling us about how much you love your gray hair and how much (laughs) beauty and love you have in your life. And then taking us through this roller coaster of a journey that you've lived through. Um, The fact that that journey has allowed you to arrive at this place is a hundred percent a testament to how you have handled it and how you have persevered and pushed through, which is so impressive. And I'm thrilled to be able to highlight that story on the podcast today. So what a gift to, to be able to do that. Thank you so much. I have one last question for you. Just thinking of everything that you've been through, going back all the way to the beginning of this journey, when you first go to the doctor in your early 20s, and you say something is happening to my body and they don't believe you all the way up until 20 years later when you finally get that answer and you're just told over and over that it's not real, that it's in your head. There's so many people out there that are living through that for one reason or another. And I'm so curious if you could send a message to anyone else in the world who is living through that, who is going to the doctor and being blamed for symptoms that they are seeking help for who has a disease that is yet to be uncovered, it's so hard to keep going. So if you could send a message to any of those people to help them continue to fight, what would it be? Keep going. I believe you. Try new doctors. Try doctors with new approaches. Try different styles of doctors. Like I said, my girlfriend was the one that recommended doctors of osteopathy that had a holistic approach. And that was really helpful for my specific condition. I'm not suggesting that's an approach for you. Keep changing till you find 
the person who listens. Be kind to yourself. Be really, really kind to yourself. And find a community. Social media wasn't available when I started my journey. So find a community that folks who may have similar symptoms and seek out information from them. I think that we have more options today in terms of knowledge. If you can find that and maybe find resources around different specialists, different types of doctors, um, do so. But mostly keep going. Um, You are so worth it. You are so worth it. It's a struggle on the other side. (laughs) It's a struggle on the other side. Um, Once you get the information, but it's a better struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a much better struggle. And again, you're worth it. You're really, really, really worth it. I love that. And I love you saying that, you know, I believe you. I feel the same way. Whenever anyone tells me that they're experiencing something that they don't understand and they feel like they need help from a doctor, I believe you. Doctors are always looking for reasons to blame the patient. Not always. There's so many good doctors out there. It's really important to say that. And the good doctors make all the difference. But I've seen plenty of doctors who didn't believe me, who blamed me, who thought that I could see a therapist and stop having symptoms entirely, that it was all completely in my mind. And being told that over and over like erodes your sense of self when it's coming from a medical professional, and then we have to rebuild after. And that's happening to all of us, you know, almost all of us. So we have to hold each other up and support each other and believe each other. Almost every single person who comes on the podcast has a story about that. So it's not just you, it's all of us. And we are in this together and we're here to support you. Absolutely. And I wish this community didn't have to exist. (laughs) (laughs) I wish there wasn't a reason for this. Like, truthfully, like, you know, just like I wish there wasn't a reason for cancer research. You know, I lost my mom to cancer. I really wish there wasn't a reason for cancer research. But um, I'm so glad that there is this community. And so um, I'm glad that we have each other. And I'm glad that through social media that we have these resources. Because I sure could have used them at 25 and so dig deep we're we're here and we're here for each other and there's community support out there and we believe you absolutely Kristen. what an incredible episode today i'm thrilled to have you on the show i'm thrilled that this happened uh please tell our listeners where they can go to connect with you online or anything else you'd like to plug i'm on instagram at bitter issues one and um there's a wonderful Acromegaly support community. It's called Acromegaly Community on Facebook. And it's an incredible community. And it has everything from resources. They also have an annual, I think it's annual, there's a biannual now, conference where people get together. The woman who is currently the president is incredible. Um, the gentleman who founded it is incredible. And the people that are part of the community are incredible. And it's global. So if you are not living in the United States where I'm currently located, there are people from all over the world um, that are connected. And so that's been a wonderful resource. It was a godsend. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to that in the description of this episode. I'll tag you on Instagram when this podcast goes live. Kristen, thank you so much for an incredible episode of the podcast. 
I really appreciate you sharing your time and your story with us today. Thank you so much, Jeffy. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.